Welcome to Biodesign, I'm Lauren Kelly, CEO of Fearless Group and I'm going to be working on a limited series speaking to some of the most influential women in business to understand how they got into their positions and what are the big movements they're making to support women in our society. Ruth, it's such an honour to be with you today. It's so inspiring your career, uh, what you're doing here at Refuge. So I really appreciate you taking the time to chat well, with me. Likewise, this is a real honour and I'm really, really grateful you've made time to come and interview me. So thank you. Amazing. Well, before we jump in to talk about Refuge, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your career and how you got where you are today. Yeah, I'd love to say that I planned it all step by step. <laughs> But I guess to some extent our careers evolve, don't they, around us. So I've always wanted to work in the voluntary sector. And even when I was at university here in London, I volunteered in a women's shelter um, as a befriender to the young women who were there. So I suppose this has always been a core part of me, actually. And I've been really privileged to have jobs in quite a few different brilliant charities, all inspiring in their different ways. And then I joined Refuge during the pandemic around two years ago. Wow. I mean, you also um, helped launch two major charities, the Princess Trust, uh, the Canal and River Trust. I mean, that's amazing, right? One of them was the largest uh, scale-up charity, right? Yeah, so the Princess Trust is an amazing charity that's been running for many years, and I was really privileged to join the team that took it internationally. Um, so part of the launch team for Princess Trust International, looking to take that brilliant work to engage young people and get them into employment or educational training globally and also Canal and River Trust, you're right, which is probably the less well-known brand that I've ever worked for, but one of the most amazing jobs, taking what was part of DEFRA, a government department, British Waterways, and turning it into a charity. So tell me about Refuge and its mission. So Refuge has been around for just over 50 years. Mm -hmm. We were the organisation under our founder who opened the first ever refuge, the first safe house for women anywhere in the world. So it's always been a very pioneering organisation and it's now obviously part of a much wider women's movement, all of which is aimed at tackling violence against women and girls and domestic abuse. So we really still are by and for women and children and we focus on domestic abuse, which takes many, many forms and is still unfortunately really misunderstood mm. and, and quite a taboo subject in our society, despite the fact that still every single week, two women will be killed by their former or current partner. And in our lifetimes, one in four women will experience domestic abuse. Which is just shocking. It's devastating and absolutely shocking that this is happening. When I was researching refuge and what you guys do, I saw the stunt that you guys did with the thousand apples outside Scotland Yard. I mean, wow, that was super powerful. Thank you. I think as Refuge, we are first and foremost a frontline provider. We run refuges, we run all sorts of services. So if you are experiencing domestic abuse, we try to be there and offer you the support you deserve and need. But we do also do quite a lot of campaigning and lobbying because ultimately we want to see a world where domestic abuse doesn't exist. And as important as it is for us to be there for every survivor when she needs us, we've got to also try and eradicate it so that one day we're not needed at all. And that's where the campaigning comes in that you saw, our rotten apples stunt outside New Scotland Yard a few weeks ago was in light of the scandalous revelations about yet another police officer who himself was a serial perpetrator of sexual offences and other crimes against women. He seemed to have been able to get away with this for almost 20 years with impunity. And I think at the time, Refuge, we, we are an outspoken brand. And I think we'd had enough of the narrative that we'd been hearing for the police for some time, that 
you know, that's a, a monster, that's a, an anomaly, that person isn't one of us, it's just a bad apple, um, as if these things could happen. Whereas in reality, the reason domestic abuse is still so prevalent in UK society, at epidemic levels, in fact, is because we do tolerate it, and we tolerate it within the police, and we tolerate it within society in a way that we just wouldn't tolerate other crimes. So we wanted to call that out. There's over a thousand officers we were referring to there, officers and staff of the Metropolitan Police, whose historical allegations of some form of abuse were being reopened. We know there's hundreds of new cases also being looked into now. This is a, a systemic and cultural issue, not just in policing, although clearly it's critical that it's within policing, but within our society as a whole. I mean, how do people respond to that when you guys did that campaign? What was the, what do people say? Do you know, that campaign got a huge amount of pickup, and I think sometimes we feel a bit angry and powerless in society, not just women, but police officers who are doing a good job, who are frustrated that this yeah. is what's happening with their colleagues, um, men who want to be allies, who want to see a better world, who don't subscribe to all of this kind mm -hmm. of misogyny and want to see it changed. Um, misogyny in society doesn't just harm women and girls, it harms all of us. So we had an overwhelmingly positive response, lots of outreach from legal firms, PR firms, supporters yeah. saying, we want to get on board and we want to help as well. Because I think we just articulated maybe the feelings of frustration and enough is enough that people are feeling right across society. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when I read this piece of news, you do think, oh, this will be old news next week. But actually, yeah. there's so much power in that campaign and not letting it just go away as a, another update. I think, yeah, it's, again, it's just super inspirational how you guys tackled that. Yeah, thank you. I mean, there's a new commissioner of the Met Police now, and he is changing the language, saying this is a systemic problem and it will take us time to address it. He's telling us there's going to be two or three cases of this kind of disturbing nature a week for months wow. and months to come. So this isn't a one-off story. And too often these, these kinds of stories are referred to as isolated incidents. The reality is we have to keep a dialogue going in society. We need to be there on the front line as refuge. We need to try and challenge policy and change policy, but we also need to drive the conversation so that misogyny is called out and we don't just accept it as a normal part of life. Growing up as small girls, we don't accept that we have a set role we have to move into yeah. and in relationships that we have to be the peacemaker, be the one who kind of smooths things over just to keep the relationship on track. All of these things we normalise, just like we normalise risk assessing can I walk home after going out this evening? Should I wear this outfit? Do I need to really consider carrying my keys in my hand? These are day-to-day -day things that you would have thought of many, many times. Every woman listening yeah. to this will have thought of every single time. We are constantly keeping ourselves safe to stay alive. And I think we have to talk about that, that that is not healthy, it's not normal, and we shouldn't just accept it as inevitable. And it's not what we want for our daughters. As a mother of a two-year-old child, it's not the future I want her to inherit. So. It's things like this that you guys are doing that I think is super powerful in the sense that it gives women hope that we can make a difference and we can drive change and we don't have to accept it. I think that's right. There's something amazing about taking on leadership of a 50-year-old organisation, but there's something profoundly depressing as well, that the statistics I said to you about the prevalence of this in society, they haven't changed in 50 years. So it has to be now, there has to be a moment of change now. Course. So I know you're obviously working on a lot of different campaigns at the moment. What's the core thing that you're driving? What's the core thing that Refuge is focused on right now? Fundamentally, we're always going to be focused on our vision of what does it take to have a world where domestic abuse is not tolerated and doesn't continue. 
And tactically, we then look at what are the opportunities that are coming up to try and influence the biggest change the most effectively. So there's two campaigns that we're working on at the moment. One is around what does it really take to prevent domestic abuse? And for us, we think that's education. And we're working with a group of young campaigners, teenagers and um, young people in their 20s, one of whom survived domestic abuse when she was very, very young. They are calling and we're amplifying their work, calling that education on domestic abuse and specifically on coercive control, which is one of the least understood forms of domestic abuse, is made mandatory in all sixth forms across England. And I think that is one of the real ways you could get upstream of this and tackle it. Mm -hmm. If you and I, when we were young girls, knew what we were looking for, what is a healthy relationship? What should I expect of myself in a relationship? And what should I expect of my partner? How much more likely are we to make good choices, to guide our friends and those we love in good choices, and to pass that on to our own children when the time comes? And that's how we'll start to see domestic abuse eradicated. So our Make It Mandatory campaign is one of our big priorities. Then the second campaign is around the online safety bill. So we've already chatted quite a lot about misogyny, but the reality is there are um, influencers who make their careers, um, become famous and make a huge amount of money deliberately posting misogynistic content. It's profitable for them. Some of them are very, very well known and mm -hmm. in prison at the moment. The reality is they have huge, huge impact on, on the behavior and thoughts of young boys and young girls. And that has a really shaping influence on society. So we are saying in the online safety bill that the government is passing, it's going through the Lords at the moment. It's going to be the first bit of legislation anywhere in the world to try and regulate the online world. We are saying let's have a code of practice around violence against women and girls. Let's hold the big tech giants, these platforms, to account that this kind of content shouldn't be allowed. It certainly shouldn't be commercially viable for the influencer or the platform. And actually, if we choose to, this is a huge opportunity to make the online world safe for women and girls. Because unfortunately, at the moment, still the response you get if you report tech facilitated abuse or online abuse is, well, just delete your account, love, or, yeah. you know, just change your password. Well, they um, just, just disappear. the one post, but the person's still free to carry on. Yeah. yeah, all of our research shows this. The best outcome you can hope for is that that post that's offensive to you might be taken down. But domestic abuse is a pattern of behavior. It's not one post here and there. It could be hundreds of posts every week, relentless attacks from many, many bots and accounts that are set up deliberately to target you. Can you imagine the traumatization and the exhaustion of reporting all of those over and over and over again? Yeah. And most of the time, even the outcome of that post being taken down isn't achieved. Never mind the perpetrator's account being suspended, which yeah. you would think would be a much more sensible response. Right, and there's no justice for that person either. If their post no. is taken down, this person is still free to go about their life thinking Correct. in some cases they haven't done anything wrong because no one is educating them. Correct. But it's not acceptable. So we want to see a code of practice, which is included in the online safety bill, which talks about safety by design of these platforms, training for the staff there, good, clear ways to report, repercussions for the platforms that don't take action. So a really whole system approach that can make the online world, the space we can't avoid, the space we always have to be in, um, if we want to live in the contemporary world, um, make it safer for women and girls, because the reality is it's not. Can you tell me what actually is domestic abuse and how do you identify it? So you're absolutely right. We still think it's battered wives. There's still a kind of theory in our heads that that's what domestic abuse is. And physical violence can be part of domestic abuse. But even then, it's not always hitting. It can be other forms of physical violence and intimidation. But domestic abuse is far wider than that. It will contain sexual abuse as well, often. 
It contains tech facilitated abuse that we just touched on, so using tech channels um, and the online world to harm you, to stalk your movements perhaps, to kind of control what you're seeing, to hack into your accounts. It can involve economic abuse, so limiting your access to money or your control and choices with your own money. And then perhaps the least understood of all is coercive control and emotional abuse. So emotional abuse, you know, belittling you, speaking down to you, it's commonly referred to as gaslighting as well, making you doubt your own version of reality, which can be extremely dangerous if that then isolates you from those who may be able to give you a different, healthier view. And coercive control is even more pervasive than that. You may not even realise it's harmful, hurtful comments. So it's so, so covert and it's all about exerting power and control over you to, to take away any ability you have to really make your own choices or think that you can leave or that another future is possible. These forms often interact. Almost all abuse will now have some kind of online component. Um, almost every case of stalking will have some kind of online element to it. So they don't sit in isolated pockets and nor are they one-off incidents. They're a pattern that will progress, unfortunately, and become increasingly dangerous over time. Yeah, it's been mind-blowing to actually understand myself as well, the extent of yeah. what is that, what domestic abuse actually is. And I think it's the same for a lot of people, so I imagine that's a big part of what, you, what you're doing here as well, is driving that awareness. Yeah. And I think what you mentioned before about educating young girls in this is what it is, it, it is going to be super powerful for the next generation too. Yeah, how do we spot the signs? How do you spot early on that this isn't something healthy when you still have enough control, enough networks, enough support to be able to move away um, is really, really critical. And I think sometimes people make the mistake as well of thinking if it hasn't become violent, if he hasn't hit me, then actually it's not that bad. But the reality is coercive control can be just as dangerous. And there are many, many well-known stories now um, being discussed more often, cases where it has gone directly from coercive control to, to murder. And I think understanding wow. the huge level of risk in someone who is choosing to control your life um, and to take away all your power and all your choices is really important and it absolutely doesn't have to be a physical manifestation of violence. You mentioned that you joined Refuge in the pandemic and I can imagine that had a huge impact on Refuge. I read somewhere that 61% it went up in terms yeah. of calls that you guys had logged of people searching for help that were victims of domestic abuse. Can you tell me any more on that? Yeah, you're exactly right on my statistics. Mm -hmm. So I did join towards the tail end of the pandemic and what Refuge had done to cope with the huge surge in demand was unbelievably inspirational. I would say still, as we now go from the pandemic to the cost of living crisis, from one crisis to another, staff are very, very tired from that because they, they became frontline workers within three days alongside the NHS and other frontline providers and they didn't stop services. We run the UK's National Domestic Abuse Helpline, which is a 24-hour helpline if you need immediate emergency assistance. It's the gateway to all services across the UK, and that's where demand went up by 61%. You're right, from around 4,000 or so calls every month up to 8,000. Wow. So 61% is a crazy statistic. What do you think contributed to such a rise? Uh, we know from other research we've done that prevalence of abuse did go up during the pandemic. People were under more pressure, under financial pressure, and the reality is that women were trapped behind closed doors, not sure they could even leave the house without breaking the law, with someone whose intent was to harm them. So we did see instances of abuse go up. I think there was a silver lining, if you can say that, to COVID, 
in that there was a national conversation for one of the first times about domestic abuse. Um, the Home Secretary at the time did say, if you need to leave home because you are not safe because of your partner, you can leave home. And that was communicated in the government's messaging early on in the pandemic. And I think we worked very hard as well to get the awareness of the National Domestic Abuse Helpline out there, knowing that it may be one of the only ways that people could communicate. We introduced a live chat as well so that people could reach out to us silently if it wasn't safe to make a call with the perpetrator in the house. They could type to us and ask for help. So I think we saw more people perhaps reaching out as well because their situation became more urgent and desperate. And perhaps slight increase in awareness also helped with that. As a CEO and a woman, I know firsthand that you carry a lot of weight with that role and that responsibility in the normal organisation, whatever normal means. <laughs> um, but with what you're doing, you're exposed to so much wrongdoing. How do you separate? How do you carry that weight? Yeah, this is one of the hardest jobs I've ever done, as well as one of the best. And I think it's really difficult as a CEO, actually, to know when, when to raise issues with staff, when to kind of draw attention to headlines, and when to when to not re-traumatise people. Many of the staff working here are survivors themselves. So at a practical level, staff have clinical supervision here, so we have psychological and therapeutic support to try and keep ourselves well mm -hmm. um, dealing with this. But there is also a real power and a real hope in doing something. I think it's why the response to the Apple stunt was so good, because people didn't know what to do. It was just so abhorrent and so shocking. And seeing an organisation stand up and say, this is not okay, and this is what we're calling for, and here are some answers. That was personally amazing for me. That stunt was on my birthday, and I can't actually imagine a better way to have spent my birthday than being in a really privileged position to speak out and say yeah. something about these issues. So yeah, it's heavy and it is really difficult, um, and sometimes the headlines do feel overwhelming. It is a movement, you know, it's not just the staff here, it's also the volunteers and all the supporters. There's something about a movement of people saying, we're not going to tolerate this anymore and we're going to do what it takes right now here on the front line or through campaigning and advocacy to, to stop this for women who are experiencing it right now to give them a way out to help them um, with the support they need to change their own lives because they are still more than capable of changing their own life if someone just believes in them and supports them but also to stop this being part of UK society and a part that we normalize yeah I agree so you've achieved some amazing things in your career, had some really influential positions. What advice would you give to the next generation of female leaders? Um, that's a great question. I think actually to think of themselves as female leaders is really good in and of itself. Um, I've always thought you're a leader wherever you are, whether you're in a relatively junior job early in your career, whether you've had to, you know, you're juggling so many responsibilities, you're working at a job that's maybe not quite as big as you're capable of, um, you can still lead. And I think that in itself is empowering. You can still be the person you want to be and live by your values and model that. Whatever your role is, whether you're at the top of the organisation as a CEO or in even the receptionist, you know, you can live and be everything you want to be. And I think when I was younger in my career, I was really lucky to meet. Um, Julia Middleton, Dame Julia Middleton, who said her, her three bits of advice, which I still remember, were know yourself, be yourself, and love yourself. They're really easy to remember and they're really hard to do, aren't they? But, <laughs> yeah. you know, you can only be a really good leader if you are being your real self. There's no point pretending to be someone else's leadership style. Um, I wouldn't advise anyone leads like me. So work out who you are, what are your values, what are your strengths? 
be that, be proud of that, and um, yeah, and, and learn to love yourself for that because because that is the way to enjoy leadership, even when you're in very very challenging jobs or challenging times. This year's International Women's Day theme is embrace equity. So why is it vital for leaders to recognise this? Do you think? I think it is too easy to other people um, and to think if we have people who are more similar to us, um, whatever that might mean and whatever context you're thinking in, whether that's someone's background, their protected characteristics, um, the school they went to, their professional careers, it's far too easy to think that people with certain characteristics or backgrounds will be more similar and will be able to work together more easily. I'm really, really proud at Refuge. We've got an incredibly diverse leadership team. We're very different people in all sorts of different ways. And that does make it harder, but it means you get much, much better decisions. And for me, I think that is one of the key reasons leaders have to be committed to equity, as well as the social justice element, which I'm from the voluntary sector. So obviously, you'd expect me to say this. Everyone is equally valuable, equally precious, and not everyone has an equal and same start in life. So for me, equity, recognising the different starting points we come from and trying to create um, an even playing field when one hasn't existed. We've all had different things that we are bringing, different things we've experienced. I think that's a moral obligation on us as leaders as well as the pragmatic point of getting better decisions and better, healthier organisations. Completely agree. Um, it was the same for me with my company, diversity, equity, it starts at the top. So. One of my priorities was making sure I had a diverse leadership team, knowing that they would then carry that on and hire diversely. And I think that's where you can make a real difference in ensuring that you're embedding that into your business. So I completely agree. Yeah, and isn't it liberating? We don't have to be everything. Maybe as women, we think we have to be everything, but actually I don't. There's all sorts of people with brilliant skills who are more talented at me at what they do and with different backgrounds, different perspectives, different insights, different personality types. Um, and that is a much, much healthier way to lead an organisation, I think, not to try and do it yourself and carry all the responsibility alone and be the one person who has all the good ideas or makes all the decisions, but to work collegiately with a diverse group. It's like having multiple, multiple different brilliant brains on something. What are the things that you look for when you're hiring people and how do you get them to work towards a shared vision? I think the core thing here at Refuge is someone's values. Um, people will have different backgrounds and that's hugely valuable. I think if you've got a commitment to our shared values, as opposed to even our strategy and what we're aiming to do at the moment, that's, that's what is really essential to us. At the very heart of our values is that we're a feminist force for good. And so we ask questions about feminism in every single interview for every single role, male or females, because there's male feminists as well. Mm -hmm. So I often say to people, you don't have to be female to work at Refuge, but you do have to be feminist. And then around that, all of our other values about building it together, so collegiate approaches to leadership and to working, about speaking the truth and standing up and being bold and brave. So I always look for a match against our values because what we do day to day might change. Domestic abuse keeps evolving, our work will keep evolving, but the core values of why we do it, I think will stay the same. And you kind of touched on this earlier, but in the same breath, how do you protect your team as well from what they are being exposed to? Because you mentioned that a lot of the team are uh, most likely to be survivors themselves. So how do you protect them from being triggered by what they're seeing or what they're being exposed to? Yeah, it's interesting. I think we choose this work for a reason, don't we? Sometimes our personal experience, sometimes our values, sometimes both. 
And I think that does make it harder to create boundaries in a way that maybe it isn't in other jobs that are less value driven. So we do bring in clinical supervision for, for all our staff and we have an employee assistance program as well, so individual counselling. And we're trying as much as you can as a registered charity to increase the ways in which we offer wellbeing support to our colleagues. But ultimately, I suppose I try and role model as the CEO. I do work really hard, but I try not to work ludicrous hours because the one thing I can boundary is my time. And I make commitments to do other things. And many of the people working here will have families, um, mm -hmm. they'll have hobbies, they'll have friends, they'll have things that they want to do. And making sure that I say, that is really important as well. Don't let this job become all-consuming. It is very easy to do it, and it's very rewarding to do it, actually. So early on, that feels like there's no sacrifice. It feels like it's a win-win situation, giving more of your time to drive a cause you care about. But that is the way to burn out, I think. Mm -hmm. So being really clear, take regular breaks, take your holiday, um, keep going with your other interests, be flexible where you can. People are always willing to put in extra here. So saying if you need to take time to go and look after things for you, then do. I suppose it's the simple things, predominantly around time, because you're not going to boundary your values or your heart. Yeah, I can relate to that. I have, I'm a single parent with a two-year-old, mm -hmm. and for me, protecting my breakfast with her in the mornings and bath times in the evenings is precious. The work that you guys are doing here is always going to be super important, and I like your point that you want to get to a point where it's not needed because you've um, solved the issues, but for now, it's still super important. Mm -hmm. So what are the key next um, initiatives or projects that you have coming up? I think right now the big challenge we're facing is what is happening with the cost of living. We saw how much abuse worsened during the pandemic and we know that financial pressure is going to make situations more intolerable at home and for someone who's just about surviving that could be the thing that pushes them over the edge and pushes them into a place of extreme risk. So like all charities we are facing the reality that our costs are going up and um, that's unavoidable. We run houses, we have to pay electricity bills. Um, our income is, is wobbly or frozen. You know, local authorities don't have money necessarily to increase the value of our contracts. And our demand has never dropped from back down to the pre-pandemic levels. Mm -hmm. And we are expecting it to continue to increase. So the triple impact of demand, increased costs and lower income is what we're going to have to navigate. Um, our core priorities, keeping the frontline services there and continuing to work to increase their availability to all survivors who need them. But how we do that through this next period is going to be yet another challenge. Um, so yeah, that, that's my big focus really, uh, keeping the doors open, keeping all the doors open as much as we can for as long as we can. Um, and that sounds very bleak, I suppose. <laughs> that is the context that we're in and I'm conscious of what it means if we close a door for a survivor. Course. and it's, it's kind of a balance to your point of keeping the doors open but also then driving the change to limit the people knocking on those doors right yeah exactly so continuing to push the key campaigns continuing to have conversations like this that raise awareness that underneath all of this is misogyny is an acceptance of this kind of crime in a way we wouldn't accept anything else you know if you or I were on a bus late at night um, and we spotted a suspicious looking package and we phoned it in they would probably evacuate the bars. They would probably call a specialist team to come and look at it. They might cordon off the whole area. Um, you know, everything would be alerted and mobilized. If you and I were on a bus late at night and we experienced um, a form of violence against us as a woman, I would imagine, let's see, but I would imagine the early response might be, well, why were you on the bus on your own? What were you wearing? Had you been drinking? So all of the focus would be on us as the victim. 
not on the crime, not on the suspicious package or who might have placed it there. And I think the contrast with how we treat terrorism, which is another national threat, violence against women and girls was classified just yesterday by the Home Secretary as a national threat um, and a strategic policing priority. The contrast in how they're treated and the response that you get is so, so different. So keeping on driving the conversation, keeping on driving the specific campaigns where we see opportunities for real meaningful change and keeping the doors open, that's, that's refuge in the next year or so. I think it's as well about educating the police, right? So that they know yeah. when they do get that phone call from the women on the bus, they yeah. treat it more seriously, I guess, than not to say that all police officers will respond in the same way, but yeah. to know how to deal with those um, phone calls. Yeah, absolutely. It's a conversation for all of society, and unfortunately that does include policing and all of the frontline response to these kinds of crimes. Because if we think it's normal in society that a woman should have to dress a certain way or behave a certain way or you know, shouldn't really be out at night anyway, certainly shouldn't have been out drinking, then, yeah, then we're never going to get anywhere with tackling it. So keeping on driving these conversations around misogyny, keeping on challenging ourselves to look for how do we as women um, expect ourselves to behave, what do we tolerate, um, and not allowing that anymore, and keeping on challenging the rest of society not to expect that of us. I remember one of the hardest conversations I've ever had with a uh, woman that I was mentoring. She asked me, um, she said, do you think I shouldn't wear this type of skirt, this short skirt, to work, or should I dress a certain way? And to be quite honest with you, I didn't know how to respond because in one breath I'm saying, no, you, you should be able to wear whatever you want to wear. That doesn't give anyone a right to comment on your body or treat you any differently. But unfortunately, that isn't the world that we live in, so you have to make a choice. If you wear the skirt, you've got to be prepared to deal with the consequences that will come from other, other people and their behaviours and know that that's not a reflection on you, that's a yeah. reflection on them or you choose to wear the trousers and you won't have to learn how to tackle those behaviours. And I still to this day don't know if I gave her the right response yeah. because whilst she's well within her rights to, to wear yeah. what she wants to wear, it's not going to change the effect that she's going to get because this is what's ingrained in our society. I agree, those are two bad choices, aren't they? You know, limit what you wear, limit how you express who you are or kind of be who you are and expect what will come from that. But that is the reality. That's why this is a systemic issue. It's not about all men. It's not even about one or two bad men. It's about all of us in society mm -hmm. and the world we've allowed to create. So it's a massive privilege working in a predominantly female organization. I would hope here that all of my staff feel they can be who they are. They can wear whatever they like um, and they can express who they are in whatever way they want. But that is not the real world that we live in all the time, you're right, and in so many decisions day to day we have to control ourselves. I think it's also, it's we assume that it's just men that would give these women a difficult time, but it can also be other women that can pass judgment on you shouldn't wear that or, um, you know. I did work for a woman once who was very clear with me that if I wanted to go further in my career, I should really invest in, you know, higher quality makeup and get hair extensions. And I remember thinking at the time, I'm not sure that this is the right place for me because I'm doing a really good job and I've mm. always wanted to be judged on what I delivered. But perhaps you, you're saying the right thing. She, she was just being realistic with me about the kind of sector and space I was working in and what I needed to be acceptable if I wanted to progress. Um, 
clearly my choice was not to stay in that organisation. <laughs> I don't blame you. <coughs> I had similar experiences, but the other side, I was told to tone down my fashion sense and wear less makeup and not spend so much time on my hair. And I tried that for a little while when I was oh, more impressionable um, in my early 20s. Yeah. But then I felt like I lost a part of my identity and what made yeah. me feel like me. And to your point, I said, actually, this isn't the right place for me to be working. Yeah, agree. So Refuge feels like a very safe, comfortable place for me. And I hope it does for all sorts of people who join us, the women and the men who work here. Um, whoever they are, that they can be their, their full version of themselves. So, I mean, nothing changes unless nothing changes, right? So uh, what can we do together to drive more awareness of refuge, the great work you're doing, and to ensure the safety and support of more women and children? What can we do as a community to well, support? Having this conversation is great because actually this is still not spoken about enough. Asking me the questions about what is domestic abuse and, and why does it matter and how prevalent is it? These are the right questions and why do we tolerate it in the way that we do? I think if people want to do more, I've mentioned our campaigning on the online safety bill and on Make It Mandatory about education in sixth forms. Both those campaigns are live and people can sign up to those campaigns on our website and add their signature and their name. That will make a difference and start to shift policy. And people can always fundraise for us. Keeping the doors open is about raising more money in this context. So if people want to give financially um, or do something to raise money for us, that's also really welcome and there's details on our website. The other thing I think people can do, if you remember it, and I often say this, is um, if they have their phone while they're watching this and you want to program in the number of the National Domestic Abuse Helpline, you never know when you're going to have a chat with someone and they're going to disclose something. You might be the only person they've ever dared to tell, the first person they've ever dared to tell. And it's difficult to know what to do when someone tells you that they're experiencing abuse or they think they might be. So a really safe and easy thing you could do if you've got that number in your phone is tell them it. Um, you know, tell them you believe them, you want to help them, and if they need someone to talk to um, who can chat through their options, they can call us. So that's 0808 2000 24-7. So helping us make that number famous, because you just never know when that's someone whose life might be saved because they make that one call. So generally speaking, um, obviously refuge is super important and whatever we can do as a community to support that, I know Fearless is partnering with you guys as well um, to look at how we can support some of these initiatives but generally speaking what can we do as women to support other women um, especially on International Women's Day? Yeah you're right this is International Women's Day it's, <laughs> it's the one day in the year where we get all the attention and focus which is great and I would say in addition to the tips around the helpline putting it in your phone because sometimes that support can be life-saving I think having these conversations how are you in your relationship how are things feeling for you um, how are you in your workplace? What's going on for you? Because it's very easy to think that what we're experiencing is what we have to experience, and it's our only option. And having healthy, great conversations with female friends, I think, has been some of the most life-changing things that have ever happened to me. Someone just being able to see things through a slightly different perspective and help me challenge what I thought was inevitable. So I would say talk. We love talking anyway. I've loved talking with you. <laughs> and I think, um, yeah, healthy conversations. Um, they don't have to be about domestic abuse, but about how our lives are going and, and listening to each other is critical. Well, thank you so much, Ruth. I really value this conversation and learning from you has been amazing. And I know that a lot of this will make a difference to a lot of people, not only helping them understand what you guys are doing to support this cause, but also just understanding what domestic abuse actually is. So 
thank you again for sharing your brain with me. I really appreciate that, and I look forward to more collaborations in the future. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Fearless have joined Refuge as a partner to look at how we can use design to drive change. There'll be more to come on this. If you've been affected by anything in the video today, please check out the comments where you can find more help and advice.